History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Today is a special bonus episode in celebration of Shakespeare's birthday. All around the world, people take the 23rd of April as a special day to celebrate Shakespeare. Some would say that we should celebrate the Bard every day, and I wouldn't disagree with that, but it's good to have a special day to focus the mind on England's greatest playwright. The 23rd of April is taken as his birthday, and the date of his death too although both dates could be slightly off. The precise date of birth is an assumption based on his baptismal records, which don't actually state the 23rd explicitly. And the date of death, 52 years later, is also an assumption based on the burial record from two days later from the Holy Trinity Church, Stratford-upon-Avon. Anyway, it's a good date to use for the celebration of his life and work. Last year, I celebrated the 23rd of April with an episode that recounted several events from his life. If you missed that, you can still find it on the podcast feed or at the website under the bonus episodes section. This year, I thought I'd get a bit more specific. I enjoy many aspects of Shakespeare's plays, but perhaps most of all, it is his use of language that fascinates me. This is not always an easy thing to consider. His early modern English is just far enough away from modern English to require thought and often some interpretation. Yet we can still enjoy its poetic nature. The heartbeat of iambic pentameter and creativity possible in blank verse still resonate as they did 400 years ago. Not only has Shakespeare been long celebrated as a great craftsman of the language, but also as a great creator of language. It is said that he created many hundreds of words that we still use today, not to mention some that have fallen out of use and we've forgotten, but they still lie there waiting to be rediscovered. Radiance. Gnarled. Dishearten, courtship, dexterously. Just five of the words that Shakespeare is credited with having created and that are still in common use today, and there are many, many more. In the modern world, we're used to English being the all-powerful language of the world, but this is far from being the way before Shakespeare's time. English is now the most spoken language on the globe, with current estimates putting the number of speakers at one and a half billion people. It may be soon overtaken by Spanish, which has had huge growth in the Americas. But what is unusual about English is that about two-thirds of English speakers have it as a second language. Not bad for a language that originated on a small island to the edge of Europe. So English started its life in a very small way. Before the Elizabethan period in England, English was pretty much only spoken by the English themselves, with even their fellow islanders, the Scots, the Welsh and the Irish, speaking their own native Celtic tongues. Having developed as Old English primarily out of the Germanic strain of the original Indo-European language, and with a heavy Scandinavian influence thanks to the Danish invasions and settlements in the north of the country, English began its travels to the mainstream when the Norman conquest of 1066 injected a lot of French into the language. As the Normans assimilated, so did the language. But Norman French remained the language of the court, the aristocracy, and the legal and civic systems. It was only in the 14th century that English became the language used for the business of the king and the legal system. The church, of course, retained its use of Latin for centuries to come. For the trader travelling to Europe, French and Latin remained the most useful languages to have at some command of. Anglo-Italian translator John Florio, language tutor to the court of James I, wrote that English was a language that would do you good in England, but was worth nothing once you had crossed the channel to the continent. 
What we now call early modern English was only about a hundred years old at the end of the 16th century, and at a point where it was about to complete its transformation from Old English. If you had said to an Elizabethan that their language was going to become the most powerful one in the world, they would have thought you were quite mad. The use of English just about spread as far as the island of Ireland, but even there its use was limited. With the natives and the Old English settlers speaking Irish Gaelic, and only the most recently settled arrivals, part of a Tudor period attempt to placate that troublesome land, speaking English. Queen Elizabeth was given an Irish primer that placed English words next to Latin and then Irish translations, and encouraged to learn a few phrases in the hope that such little touches might strengthen her rule on the Emerald Isle. Yet if language and power go together, then it seems England did not have much of either. When Henry VIII had taken his kingdom away from the influence of Rome in the Reformation and estranged his land from the European Catholic powerhouse of France, initially England looked very isolated. But strong trading ties with the Low Countries, thanks to the quality of English wool, kept contacts with Europe alive. And with the sweep of Reformation and Counter-Reformation across Europe, by the time his daughter was on the throne, England had become a haven for the Protestant dispossessed from Italy, France and the Netherlands. London in particular became a melting pot of different cultures and languages, something that caused not a little tension with the local inhabitants. Records show discontent and even riots as parts of the city became home for different national and religious groups. Shopkeepers blamed the incomers for their poor profits, and the underemployed blamed them for their impoverishment. But the immigrants strengthened Elizabeth's Protestant project, and they had the support of her and her council. So London in particular quickly became a cosmopolitan city. And one of the places where the locals mixed with the newcomers was at the theatre. At Shakespeare's Globe and the other theatres, travellers of all sorts attended plays. It was one of the things to do in London, both for residents and visitors. There are records of German, Italian and Swiss travellers who recorded their impressions of London theatre at the time. This was the scene that Shakespeare operated in and was influenced by. This conglomeration of different nationalities, professions and classes that mingled at the theatre. The yard of the theatre was filled with something like 3,000 people on a good day, standing shoulder to shoulder. Sometimes, especially in the heat of summer, tensions rose as they jostled for position, and no doubt insults were flung at foreigners, a cheap win for anyone with a grievance. When Shakespeare was in attendance or performing, he would have heard the hubbub from the backstage, his keen ear picking out the tenor of the crowd and perhaps the odd pithy phrase. Shakespeare was a long-term resident of the city, having lodged in London for over ten years with the Huguenot Mountjoy family. Living closely with exiled French speakers, he would have been well aware of the political and religious tensions they had escaped from and no doubt helped them find their way around English as a new language for them in their day-to-day -day life. As far as we know, Shakespeare never left England and learnt of Europe through its literature and its history, but I think also from its ex-residents now living in London. The aforementioned John Florio was an important player in this process. He wrote extensively for the English, translating Italian Renaissance works and writing primers to teach Italian. He also wrote the first attempt at an English dictionary. For Shakespeare, he was a source of content for stories and probably for individual words too. We know Shakespeare saw at least some of his work because he directly quotes some Italian proverbs Florio documented. 
As we know from the story of the Renaissance theatre, the same stories were recycled frequently, stretching back to Plautus and Terence, and sometimes shamelessly copied by one dramatist from another. Shakespeare's possible sources have been discussed for a very long time, but we can say that they certainly included Latin, Italian and French originals, some of which he probably read in translation. Shakespeare and his fellow playwrights certainly recognised the power of language. They were writing words to be spoken out loud, to be there in the moment and then lost in the wooden O. In the Renaissance, the idea that something so transitory and temporary as the spoken word could raise man above the animals was a powerful one. The ability to express ideas and emotions in words was, the thinking went, what gave man his elevated position in nature, and any loss of that power was a decline into something monstrous. In The Tempest, Caliban has given up coherent language and is treated with the contempt that deserves. When in Troilus and Cressida, Ajax says that speaking is for beggars, it is a mark of how far that he has declined and lost his reason. In Hamlet, Ophelia's descent into madness is demonstrated by an outpouring of incoherent language that carries but half sense. Renaissance thinking saw language as a glue that held society together, so the loss of the ability to form coherent expression made you something less than a fully paid-up member of the Club of Civilization and something closer to the natural world. That thinking came from authors who had been trained in the new universities, where the Roman rhetorical skills they gained gave them the ability to make an argument from one point of view or the opposite, through the use of logic. Where we might now think of chaos and thinking outside of reality as the best source for creativity, for them the opposite was true. Their creativity was born from the desire to stamp their idea of right order onto the world, and language was a key component in an author's ability to do that successfully. Language and coherent expression was also important in the questions of love and honesty. At the beginning of Romeo and Juliet, the young Romeo is in love with the idea of being in love. He has convinced himself that he's in love with Rosaline and hangs about playing the distracted lover. Mercutio mocks his performance, saying, Romeo, humours, madam, passion, lover, appear thou in the likeness of a sigh, speak but one rhyme and I am satisfied. It's only when Romeo meets Juliet, who he truly falls in love with, that he can speak coherently with fine poetry. The next time he meets Mercutio, they are able to engage in some complex wordplay. Such wordplay was considered a sign of intelligence in itself during the Renaissance period and an indication that Romeo had returned to the real world and society. Mercutio even says, Why, is this not better than groaning for love? Now art thou sociable, now art thou Romeo, now art thou what thou art, by art as well as by nature. By sociable he means acceptable for society and he demonstrates this by his skill, his art, at wordplay including a lot of punning. We now tend to see some of this as laboured humour and even as failed humour, but that's because we don't easily understand the references and the meanings of some of the words and miss the playfulness of the language. For the contemporary audience, this was Shakespeare showing off his wit and abilities, something that he would have been admired and appreciated for rather than thought of as being too clever by half. Not that Shakespeare was immune to that criticism, Green's famous upstart crow comment has something of the too clever by half about it, and maybe not a little jealousy. 
Shakespeare was, in his heart, a poet. And Romeo and Juliet is, in part, a homage to the sonnet, at the time considered the most perfectly distilled form of poetry. So Shakespeare is clever in his use of language because he builds on past traditions, takes new ideas from London's growing immigrant community and shows his erudite abilities to all who want to come and see them. But what of this creation of new words? The idea that Shakespeare created more words than any other writer in English came about after the publication of Dr Johnson's famous English Dictionary, first published in 1755. Dr Johnson was a great admirer of Shakespeare, but not completely uncritical. In fact, he too had a problem with Shakespeare's wordplay. He said of his puns, A quibble, poor and barren as it is, gave Shakespeare such delight that he was content to purchase it by the sacrifice of reason, propriety and truth. Johnson was, of course, well known for his forthright views that were freely expressed, but that does seem a little bit harsh. It suggests that, only about a century and a half after Shakespeare's time, much of the original meaning of the wordplay had become obscure. In Johnson's defence, the driving thought of his time was the rationalism of the Enlightenment. The idea that two words that sounded the same but had a different meaning could be brought together just because of that random coincidence just didn't gel with Enlightenment thinking. But that just points us back to another aspect of Shakespeare's genius. He could mix the concepts of classical rhetorical argument and Renaissance logic with joking puns that were born out of the fluidity of language, and especially the spoken word. This was, we must remember, the time before dictionaries and fixed spellings. Spoken English was perhaps more alive and malleable in Elizabethan England than in any other time before or since. Johnson's dictionary included 40,000 words and was an incredible achievement. It marks the beginning of the fixing of spelling, pronunciation and meaning of words in English. However, his dictionary is not quite like a dictionary as you would think of it today. Johnson's choice of words to be included was greatly influenced by the literature of the preceding 200 years, and Shakespeare of course loomed large in that. The citations for usage that Dr Johnson used mostly come from literary sources. Shakespeare, because of his unrivalled position in the historic canon of English literature, is much quoted in the dictionary. Following on from Johnson's work, Victorian academics studied Shakespeare more thoroughly than any of his contemporaries, and he therefore became credited with the creation of many words. Some have quite ridiculously claimed that he invented up to a quarter of English words. More realistically, others have said maybe several thousand. In recent years, with the advent of digitisation and increasing computer power, a new type of study called corpus linguistics has been developed. This gives the capability for a full analysis of the entire canon of a writer, so that the use of words and the use of words in particular context can be studied, giving us a kind of aerial view of a writer's achievements. Now we can see the wood for the trees which is an expression found in John Hayward's collection of English proverbs published in 1546, although I don't think it was ever used by Shakespeare in a play. Reasonable estimates had come down to suggesting that Shakespeare had invented between 1,500 and 2,000 words. But this latest type of analysis suggests that Shakespeare invented just three or 400 words at most. And don't get me wrong, this is still an incredible achievement by any standards. Many writers have invented words that stuck in the language, but maybe only two or three at most. For one person, to multiply that up by a factor of a hundred is incredible. 
And by invented, we both mean created and made first recorded use of. Take, for example, the word incarnadine, which appears in Macbeth and means a blood-red colour. It is derived from the Italian for meat, carne, and in context gives the sense of blood-red and cutting of raw flesh, perfect for Macbeth in that moment. It is a created word and derived from another language. Then there is howl and hobnail, grime and glow. Not new words, but used for the first time as nouns by Shakespeare. There are also new conjoined words, like please man, as in yes man, and rose-lipped and rose-cheeked. Then there are words where the meaning is stretched by the context, so that they deliberately jar and bring attention to themselves. Revolting meaning rebellious, or traditional meaning to be bound by tradition. And sometimes it just seems like the bard having a bit of fun. I particularly like raw-boned, meaning very gaunt, skimble-scamble, meaning senseless, ruttish for sexually charged, and loggerhead for one lacking in common sense. I could go on, there are many. And we have to acknowledge that not every word Shakespeare invented or used in an original way caught on. You will probably never have heard of words like armgaunt, insistia, or wappened, unless in a Shakespeare play. Those three mean slender-armed, persistence, and, well, wappened has been argued over, but probably means a woman who is no longer a virgin, with the possible implication of immorality on her part. And of course, it's not just the words created and twisted and borrowed, but the phrases that are created with them. Othello's well-known green-eyed monster is a Shakespeare original. But the next time you feel your teeth set on edge, or you want to fight fire with fire, or you realise that the game is up, and you might soon be as dead as a doornail, or that you might vanish into thin air, think of Shakespeare. Those are all his. And I think that is the real takeaway from these thoughts about Shakespeare and language. It doesn't really matter if he invented tens, hundreds or thousands of words. Any number over a few would be and is astounding. What matters is the way he used them. The way he could craft the words at his disposal into phrases and poetry that made his audience look into themselves and their place in the world and come to a better understanding of the way they lived their lives. Before Shakespeare, English was a relatively little-used language. But through the influence of immigrants and a thirst for the culture of continental Europe, English became a language where complex ideas could be expressed in a variety of ways, using words that had become incorporated from many different sources. Shakespeare was responsible for some of that invention. But more significantly, he put those words to use and turned them into something beautiful and meaningful in a way that had not been done before. And we can still marvel at his skills today, all these years on from his birth and his death. And I think to finish, we need to let the words speak for themselves. But rather than a passage from a play, what follows is, I think, my favourite Shakespeare sonnet. In the poem, Shakespeare compares his lover's attitude to other things in the beauty of nature. This is a tradition that goes back to Greek and Roman poetry. But Shakespeare twists the hyperbole of that tradition by using the poem to point out the way his lover pales in comparison to nature. As he also does in the language of his plays, Shakespeare is relying on his audience recognising a form from an earlier time and that he is playing with it and twisting it to do something different and new. His lover does not compare well to nature. Her lips are dull, 
her breasts too pale, and she walks on the ground proving that she is not the goddess he imagines her to be. The beauty of the poem is that despite the failings listed, it is still sensual, and her failings do not deter him. His lover may not be outrageously beautiful, but she is no less lovable and meaningful to him. Love, he is saying, surpasses all of these transitory concerns. So here is Sonnet 130. My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. With a hearty happy birthday wish to William Shakespeare. My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow from her head. I have seen roses damasked red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes there is more delight than in the breath from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet, by heaven, I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. Thank you.